This episode of Money Honestly by Cache is brought to you by USAA. If you're currently serving, a veteran who served honorably, or an eligible family member, they've got your back through every stage of life. To learn more, visit USAA.com. Hi, this is Money Honestly. I'm Jana Heron, and today we have Dara Singh, Denitza Tekova, and Stephanie Simkos, my team at Yahoo Finance and Cache, joining us today. To celebrate the 100th anniversary of women's suffrage, we'll be talking about women in education, in the workplace, and in personal finances. So guys, thank you for being here. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, this is going to be so much fun. Yes. So the last 100 years, a lot of things have changed for women, especially when it comes to working, um, education, and personal finances. And so if we go back, and I'm going to start with Dara, because one of the things I know when I talk to my mother and maybe other people talk to their mothers or grandmothers, they can tell you about a time when they couldn't get a credit card on their own without their husband's help. And so to me, that's like very striking. And also that doesn't seem very long ago that that women couldn't do that. So Dara, can you take us back and tell us how that changed? Jana, you won't even believe it when I say that people who women who are 30 years or older, they were born into a time where women couldn't even get a credit card without having maybe their spouse co-sign it, their male spouse. And for me, that's really surreal to believe since, um, you know, a lot of us in here, like who work at Yahoo, you know, are near that age group. Um, So yeah, in 1974, the Equal Credit Opportunity Act was passed, and that basically made it illegal for credit card companies and other creditors to discriminate against any type of applicant based on gender, race, religion, or national origin. But obviously, it was a great big deal for women, too, because, you know, they didn't need their husband to come in. And we know that having a credit card, it's just much more than using it to pay for, let's say, a pair of shoes or using it, you know, to do online shopping. It's it's really a way for you to build credit, um, to show trustworthiness that if you have to get a loan from a bank to get a home, you can do so. So it opens up, there's a trickle down effect of opportunity after that. Right. So it opens up a lot of doors to doing more financial transactions and women before weren't a part of that. Yeah. And yeah. And I think home ownership, like just the fact that now you have, um, now you can get a credit card and if you pay it on a monthly basis, you can show someone that, you know, you're a trustworthy borrower. It, when you, when it goes to getting a mortgage um, or any type of other loan, that trustworthiness is going to go a far way. And it's definitely evident too. And like just seeing how, you know, women, how even single women have come far and buying homes. That's really interesting. I'm going to get back to that. I want to ask everybody here, have credit cards. Yeah, we all do. Yeah. Yeah. And so can you imagine a time of not being able to get one unless you had a man co-sign with you? Oh no. <laughs> that um that would be a pain. I feel like I wouldn't be able to really do a lot of things. Yeah, it is it, we've come so far because now like 
you get credit card offers all the time in the mail or by email and stuff. And it's like, it's no big deal. But yeah, that's an amazing thing that that wasn't available to people, to women, you know, before 1974. Right. It's also a huge assumption too. Dara, I, I, I want to make sure that I'm getting your point right. Is that if you had to have a male sort of not, I guess, co-sign with you or open up the account with you. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. So, so it's also a huge presumption that a woman would have a male in her life. Not everyone has a husband or a spouse or a father that will step in and, and help her. So it's, it's already just kind of discredit. I mean, it's, it's a huge discredit to women, but it's also a you know, kind of sets women apart in another way of that you need this male to, to help you do this. Yeah, that, that was a really, that was a really great point you brought in because I just wonder like if you do get divorced, well, I mean, in the divorce, if your partner takes some of the wealth, then it's kind of like you, well, you can't even build from, build on your own. So that's a really good point. Yeah. So similarly, right, for a long time, society considered women that they belonged at the home. But now we're all working ladies, career ladies. Um, But back then, maybe if you had a career, it's something that was more feminine, female-like, right? Teachers or secretaries. So, Denitza, you're looking into how the workplace has changed for women. What changed a lot of that? How come we can now be journalists or we can also be doctors or we can be lawyers. Yeah, I, actually that's kind of adding to Dara's point. So around one in three women uh, were actively participating in the workforce in 1948. And in the 2000, around 2001, that number doubled and it's 60%. So it's two in three women are participating. So that's a huge change. While for men, the number is going down. For women, it's rapidly increasing. And I think we can connect that to the credit card issue because there is that new role of a woman of not just being the wife of someone who works, someone who consumes, but the woman actually becoming a consumer and a worker and a really important part of the economy. And, you know, uh, after the 2000s, there have been ups and downs, um, including the pandemic. But... Just recently, we were at a point where women dominated the non-farm role um, workforce. And this is a huge moment where women were actually accounting for over 50% of the workforce. So that's a very, very long way we've come uh, from the 1940s. And were there like any kind of court cases or, or um, you know, Congress, acts of Congress that help women um move forward in the workplace? Yeah, similar to what Dara says, it seems like the 70s uh, were a time when more and more gender-based cases, um, discrimination cases were getting there. Uh, the first one was Phillips versus Martin Marietta Corporation. And it was the case that a, a married woman with a child was applying for a job and she didn't even have the her application approved because she had a preschool children. But the thing is, the company was employing men who had who were in the same position with the same children. So she filed a court case. 
She didn't win the court case, but that was the first sex discrimination case. And from there on, there has been a lot of progress. There was the Reed versus Reed case, which is a really historical one. That was the first major Supreme Court case um, addressing discrimination based on gender. And what happened there is that a married couple, which was then separated, um, their husband died and the, they had trouble, a conflict, deciding who's going to administer the estate. Uh, and at the time, this was happening in Idaho, um, it was considered that the man is more reliable to do that. Um, so, uh, <laughs> of <course>. yeah, <laughs> so they filed a case and uh, they actually this time it was successful and the Supreme Court prohibited differential treatment based on sex for the first time. So that's a really historical case that happened in 1971. Uh, and then there was another case which was actually... Uh, filed by a man, and he was an unmarried man, and he was claiming a tax deduction for taking care of his mother, but such tax, hmm. yeah, such tax deduction wasn't available for him because he wasn't a woman or a formerly married man. So the Internal Revenue Service said, no, you can't have that tax deduction, and he filed a case, and he won the case, and such deductions are no longer based on gender. And this is a really big win uh, for, for both sexes, both genders. That's really interesting. And one of the things I want to talk about, too, is like, but we're not done yet in terms of um, our gains in the workplace. And I would like you to go over like some of the things that we're facing. But I also like to hear from like Dara and Stephanie about any, you know, personally in the workplace, where do you feel like we need to go as women as well? Sure. Um, I think. You know, hearing that history, Danita, was super, you know, it was, it's just crazy to think that that was like in the 1970s. And yeah, we're like in 2020, but it's still not that it's super far ago. You know, like you're some of our parents were in that generation. So it's really astonishing. So I'm Danita, like I saw that kind of even today, it seems like women are still making 77 cents per a dollar that a male makes is that is that kind of true like we need there's a lot more work that needs to be done for sure yeah this is the case that's the other thing starting from the point where it's like oh women of 50 percent of the workforce their participation rate is very high but we see a lot of big problems and one of them is the gender pay gap and as dara says i think the number is actually 82 cents um, for one dollar earned by men of all races. And this is particularly bad for women of color. And the, the number there is 62 cents for every dollar. So, you know, all those big gains come on top of still a really huge gap. And we see that not only a gender pay gap, we see uh, leadership roles. Can, do you know how many of the Fortune 500 CEOs are women? Give it a try. Oh, no. Twelve. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Jana. Four. Oh wow. Fortune five hundred, right? Stephanie. It's thirty-eight. <laughs> well, you're this is how much is normal that we're <laughs> I mean, it's normal because it's only seven point six percent. So that's that's what I was super thinking. low for a gender. Yeah, for a gender who accounts for 50% of the workforce, but still 38 in 2020. So a very long way to go. And another thing... Yeah, that's... um. Oh, sorry. 
And that's a big deal. Go ahead. I'm sorry. And another thing that there is a very long way to go is hiring discrimination. Despite all these cases, you know, the discrimination is not as it was in the 1970s, where you were just denied a job because you had a children, a child. Uh, but still, there are so many complaints. Like one in three complaints in 2019 was discrimination based on gender, and then one in three was discrimination based on race. And, you know, this happens at the gate where people get a job and there is a lot of hiring discrimination there. So if we still have that at a point where people are entering the job market, by the time they come to the leadership roles, they're facing even more obstacles, which is making a really hard hard journey for women. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Money Honestly by Cache, brought to you by USAA. If you're currently serving a veteran who served honorably, or an eligible family member, USAA has your back. They can help you manage your money and protect what's important to you. With roots grounded in the military, they understand what their members are made of and can offer financial products and tools that fit their unique needs. For those who sacrifice so much for our nation, USAA is here to serve you. To learn more, visit USAA.com. Membership eligibility and product restrictions apply and are subject to change. That's true. And one of the things I wanted to point out, and this is also from personal experience, but I know Stephanie also did an article on this um, in the last uh, week or week and a half. But I remember when I was offered a job, not where I am currently, um, and I was trying to negotiate the pay. And I found out later, and I was negotiating with a woman, actually, um, HR person. And I was trying to get, you know, a little bit more. And I found out later um, through the grapevine after I'd gotten the position that, the, that she was very upset that I would come back and try to negotiate a higher salary. And I felt like that's probably how a lot of women feel sometimes that when they try to negotiate something, something that men do all the time, they get more pushback. And Stephanie, I know that you talked with actually a financial therapist about negotiating your salary. Is this something that's unusual? No, definitely not. Um, You know, women are, we know that women are less likely than men to negotiate salaries. And it's, you know, the, the financial therapist kind of pointed to social conditioning and biology as those reasons. And, you know, it makes me, as a woman who works with other females that I admire, like it makes me sad because I know that everyone that I work with, we're all so capable, but if we could all just be more confident when we approach and we have these negotiations, like who knows what could happen, but there's absolutely the fear of reprisal or just like your offer being revoked. Um, you know, women, I kind I guess to the financial therapist's point that women are just kind of, she said, you know, quote, we're just kind of conditioned to be grateful and that this job offer will just accept it and take it without negotiation. So, you know, it is a, it is a reflection of how we see ourselves and it does come down to self-worth. Right. And what society has been telling us how we should see ourselves. You should be grateful that you got, you got the job offer, but you know, don't, get out of line yep. and ask for more. Stay in your lane. Don't rock the boat. 
um, ask for a raise in a year or five years, like that type of deal. And I've received that advice from people who are really, you know, well-intended, but just from a different generation. And it's really important for women to be their advocate because we live longer. Um, yeah. You know, the marriage rates are not as high. There are a lot of a lot more single women who are going to need to depend on their own personal finances. <clears throat> if they are married and something happens to their spouse, they need to be able to step in. So I know, Dara, you talked to a couple of people who mentioned how women's mentality or focus on money has changed. Um, can you expand on that? Yeah, sure. So this is this goes both anecdotally and even statistics show it, but anecdotally a lot of the financial advisors I've talked to, like I talked to someone from Legal Zoom, and she was just saying that women are more likely to ask for what they want now. And you know, they don't need to depend on a man for their financial future. So whereas previously there would be a lot of doubt, like should I, you know, put my relationship first, my children, you know, now they're really into the mindset of wealth building. So that can even be like, when it comes to wealth building, a lot of women are even eyeing properties and are eyeing kind of buying their first time home. So that's, that's definitely a big shift there. Right. Like they're not waiting to be married before they go and say, I'm going to buy a home. Right. That usually was the, the way it went, right. First you get married then you buy the home, then you have the kids and da, 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 da. But you're saying women are a, a force in the homeownership market. Yeah. Like if I can tell you this, just in 1981, um, single females, 11% owned homes. And this, even back then, you know, that might've been a significant number, but by 2006, it was an all-time high of 22%. It was 22% then, and for single males, the number, if you can guess, it was just 9%. And then for unmarried um, couples, it was around 7%. So 22% is it's like a significant jump. Although the number, I do have to say, the number has declined, but remained um, has remained consistent the last two years. So last year, the NAR, um, National Association of Realtors, found that it was 17%. And this year, it's also 17%, while honestly, the single male number is still 9%. So it, it, it does point back to the mindset of certain women as well, women are more college educated in today's day, but they also want to build that wealth. And there's nothing wrong with that. And that's the thing that's interesting. Like women who are interested in money before we called gold diggers and all that, but it's, it's very, <laughs> it's practical that we need to improve our personal finances um, and be independent. And Dara, you brought up a good point about we're more, women are more educated um, than they have been before. And I wanted Stephanie to, to weigh in on that and what that means. Of course, you know, um, as women, we outnumber our male classmates in, you know, higher ed. And, but still, it, it's still one of those things that we are more educated, but, you know, to Denise's point, we make, we make less, which is uh, very unfortunate. But, you know, pointing back to the 19th Amendment is that, 
Americans still point to it as the single most important event in the elevation of women. And what's interesting is that it kind of spurred so many other advances for women and kind of this like societal cultural shift for people to really invest in things like education and social welfare programs and, you know, places like hospitals. But, you know, primarily the it was really a turning point for for education and particularly among, you know, Southern whites and then blacks. And where do you guys think that we need to go? I mean, we talk we're talking about these wonderful gains that we've made. And again, like to Dara's point, who's back in the 1970s doesn't seem that long ago, but a lot of things appeared to happen then and um, continue to happen. Where do you think we need to go next? What, what should be the next thing that we try to tackle and hope society tackles? I mean, one thing that might be interesting is we have um, in politics, we have a vice presidential candidate who is a um, black and Asian American woman. And that's first time. That's amazing. Um, last cycle, we had a presidential candidate who was a woman. And then two cycles before that, the Republican ticket also had a vice presidential candidate who was a woman. So um, you're seeing us represented, but none of those tickets yet, not sure about this ticket, got all the way. So what glass ceilings do we need to keep keep going at? I think um, one of the things that comes into mind is that as I was talking about home ownership, yeah, yeah, single women have more home ownership than men, but it's not a, it's not a perfect picture in any way, you know, especially with the pandemic as people are losing jobs. Um, there's still so many hurdles for women to even reach their fullest potential with wealth building. A lot of the experts I talked to said that there's so many challenges like affordability challenges in housing that prevent many women. As Denitza said, women you know are getting paid less than men and along with the external factors during the pandemic and how housing is priced, it can really affect a single woman from buying her home if she can't really afford it. Right, right. The pandemic, that's a good point too. Um, Stephanie, you've been doing some work on childcare, remote learning and things like that, which disproportionately falls on women in that, in a household. Absolutely. You know, it, it's, really hard if you're, you know, a two-parent household or a one-parent household and you're able to work from home, but, you know, women, primarily the, the guilt falls on women and, it, and it's a, a self-perpetuating guilt, but that, you know, you have to be the outstanding employee because you have to keep your job, um, but then you also have to be an outstanding mother and, you know, take, make sure that, you know, be a lot more invested and involved in your child's education where women can still be involved in, you know, education, but, you know, for at least a, a couple of hours a day, children are at school. And now in parts of the country, children are remote learning. So it's, um, women are really being stretched in, in many directions right now and um, definitely feeling it just emotionally and financially because, you know, buying school supplies is a very different, very different sort of 
field this this upcoming school year, you know, needing things like tablets or laptops or webcams to make sure that you can connect with your class and people want to provide that for their children. And it's interesting, you know, women taking on that role as, you know, tutor or, you know, half teacher for the remote learning. There's been speculation that that's why there's been a decline in the labor participation rate um, because women are opting who were working before are opting to either go part-time or, or maybe not work at all so that they can manage this new normal. And Denise, can you tell us a little bit more about like what else the pandemic has done um, when it comes to women's gains? Uh, yeah. So as you said, the participation rate decreased from 58% to 56 just for two, two, three months, which is a huge decrease. I mean, it also decreased for, for men. This is not um, a, a specific women issue, but what happened early in the pandemic is that a lot of the sectors that heavily employ women were the first to be hit and they lost a lot of jobs. And the way that that works is um, if many of those jobs are long-term losses, uh, long-term unemployment losses, they will lead to scarring effects in their employment history, uh, resulting in finding a job in the future, difficulty in just holding them back. Um, And then another thing is um, sectors like education, which wasn't exactly hit in the beginning in terms of job losses as much, is a question is a sector where many questions are to be answered and many and probably many jobs uh, may be lost or restructured and this sector is heavily employs women so this is one field where we should be watching what happens to women working there um and then going back to the child care thing um stephanie was talking about we saw a lot of numbers of people who are staying at home to take care of childcare, remote learning and all that. And these are mainly women and women of color. So, you know, when we, there are two aspects of this. There is first the childcare infrastructure when when talking about what we can do in the future. The first is a childcare infrastructure and even going back to maternity paid leave, which in the U S is one of the shortest in the world. Uh, and, you know, childcare is very expensive and a lot of people can afford it. And now with school building remote, there is a whole new issue. And then the other thing is where we go back to the genders is what are, what is the role of the other partner? And I think there was a great headline by the New York Times. It was from a survey and it says nearly half of men say they do most of the homeschooling. 3% of women agree. Well, <laughs> I, I think explains a big part of the problem in terms of, um, you know, where do you split those responsibilities? And are we in a situation where women have two full-time jobs, one of which is unpaid? Uh, I'm talking about the, the childcare and the homeschooling. So, you know, there is the infrastructural national problem, but there is also the one in our relationship with our partners. Well, yeah, that's, I can definitely um, relate to that and see that. And I, it makes you really realize that we've come a long way, but there's still work to be done um, in a lot of different areas. Women are financially secure um, and are able to reach their potential in whatever they choose to do. So guys, thank you, Stephanie. Denitza and Dara for joining us today on Money Honestly. 
And thanks everyone listening. Head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and review. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to this episode of Money Honestly by Cache, brought to you by USAA. If you're currently serving, a veteran who served honorably, or an eligible family member, they've got your back through every stage of life. To learn more, visit USAA.com.